Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Doxasi Philanthrope. Glory be to you, O lover of mankind. We hear that often. And we may imagine, you know, in a very simple way, that God loves us as humans. But this refrain raises a lot of questions. What does it mean to be human? And what does it mean for God to love humanity? With me today is Joshua Gibbs. He is a classical teacher at gibbsclassical.com. Um, he has years of experience teaching in classical education. And as you've heard in my, several of my episodes by now, classical education has a very direct relationship in the history of the church with the education of the fathers and early Christians. And it even continued up until the late 1800s. And now it's experiencing a resurgence in the United States. So with me today will be Josh. He will be. Um, he and I will be discussing this topic: philanthropia, love of mankind. So, what does this mean, Josh? What does it mean that Christ loves humanity? There are, of course, many enticing ways of beginning an answer to that question. Um, because we're we're here to talk about classical education, I'd like to pick just one way that we could describe Christ as the lover of mankind. Um, Christ is the lover of mankind in that he is the one who heals mankind and repairs mankind. Christ is the convalescence of mankind. And mankind holds a unique position in this way as the creature that can be repaired. Uh, animals do not sin as rational creatures or beings, and so they don't need to be repaired. Um, and there's something about uh, angels such that when they fall, they cannot be repaired either. But mankind is the creature that can fall from grace and be restored to it. And Christ's love of mankind is the repair and the, the enlivening of a creature that is spiritually decaying. So that's a, you know, that's a good start. It's, we have this idea of lover of mankind is the one who heals us. His, yes. love, his love equals healing. And even when we think about it, you know, the idea of, God as agape, as love, um, which is slightly different than philanthropos, which uses philia, but actually in, in Greek, it's not so much it's a different form of love as a different shade or distinction of a general idea of love that the Greeks had um, and that the early Christians um, did their own spin on. 
But it's like love, when we love someone with agape, it's we will to do good to them or we will the good for them. And in that sense, that love is rational. You mentioned um, we are rational creatures. Um, what does that mean? You know, if my, you know, if someone on the street hears rational, they think, you know, reasonable, right. um, something well thought out. Is that what we mean when we say that the human being is the rational animal? Um, no, not exactly. Uh, it's a, it's a fine question. Um, as with your first question, there are a great many ways that we could describe what it means, what it means to be rational. Um, one of my favorite answers to that question uh, comes from a comes from a fascinating little middle chapter of a book called Lost in the Cosmos by Walker Percy. And he has this little digression in the middle of a book that's otherwise a, a parody of self-help books. He has this little digression where he talks about uh, semiotics and he talks about why animals can't talk and what it means that, that people can. And uh, he describes rationality as a couple of things related to the concept of meaning. Um, to be rational is to be capable of discerning um, multiple meanings from the same sign. It's an ability to bring disparate things together in your head um, or in your spirit and to see the way that things, to see the way that things rhyme with each other, to see the way that things fit together. Um, to see uh, the single God that created different sorts of things and to perceive a common origin in things that apparently have nothing in common. I would say that's what, um, or a more simple version is, you know, an ability to contemplate the past and the future and to see the relationship between these two things as opposed to merely um, acting on instincts as animals do. Um, yeah, I, I would say that's rationality. Yeah, yeah. And and that's a good place for our audience to start. Um, I mentioned the rational animal for those of you listening. Um, this is how the church fathers defined the human being. And it was in line with um, some things that certain philosophers had said before, um, before uh, the incarnation. But the church fathers accepted that definition. Um, the rational part that Josh described um, that sees how things fit together and can discern one hand behind them, that is God, that rationality lives in the image of God that we're created in. So, you know, when we hear image of God, a lot of us just, unfortunately, it's like an empty phrase that kind of points out how special we are as humans. Yes. But, but the narrative itself in Genesis chapter one gives a pretty good indication what that image is, because... When you say image, yes, it's image as in picture. Um, even in the in the Hebrew um, underlying it, it's the word that was used for idols, that we are in a way the representation of God on earth. But the problem with that is when God is described in Genesis chapter one, he's not described with any physical attributes. They're all rational, meaning they're all um, characteristics or attributes of mind. You know, we see purpose, we see intention, we see evaluation. Um, 
and that's also what lives in our minds. When we can when we can see how things fit together, we're discerning purpose. So it literally is a reflection. He has done, and we see, and we can infer, and we can see the purpose. So he sets the purpose, we recognize the purpose. Um, so that's rationality. And the love of God, agape, that heals us is also rational because it's goal-oriented. Hmm. You know, in cases of like philia and um, uh, eros and storge, those are, um, I would say, sort of response as opposed to a reaction, reactionary as opposed to being totally active. So Eros were drawn to things. Might it be, you know, a beautiful landscape or, or a beautiful text or a beautiful woman? We are drawn to these things. And it may not even be things of that nature. We're also drawn to our friends um, who share our dispositions. Um, but themphilia is like, you know, affection. But agape, it's totally active. It's not reactionary. This is why God um, would say things like, or Jesus says, love your enemies, for God so loved the world. It's, it has nothing to do with a reaction, but pure act on God's part. He initiates and it causes a transformation in us when we respond. So he heals us. But now with that said, we have rationality and God loves us with this rational love. Um, how does that connect to education? How does, uh, human rationality yeah and god's active love for mankind pertain to education yeah many different ways um i when i think of education i've been in classical education for 15 or 16 years now and it strikes me that that people mean different things when they talk about education. So there's a convention of what education is in this country, yeah. which, which often just means the transference of knowledge from one head into another. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna get some facts from my head into yours. And a good teacher is the one who gets the facts uh, out of their head most clearly and cleanly. And, and cements them most deeply into somebody else's head. That's what a good education is, is, um, uh, is the permanent reception of facts. And I think that memory is important. Uh, that which is not retained is not learned. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But when I think of, when I think of a classical education, a classical education is not about the transference of of mere facts or mere information. Um, a classical education is about reordering the loves of the heart properly. A classical education is remedial in that way. Um, and it and, assumes- and, and remedial in the sense of healing. In, in the sense of healing, convalescence, yeah. that's right. Yeah, remedium, uh, remedium in Latin is uh, like medicine, healing. I agree ent entirely um, that, that it's a good education is, is medicine. Um, I believe that there is a hierarchy in the human heart um, that we both, we know what the hierarchy ought to be, and then we know what the hierarchy actually is. We know that we ought to love God the most, 
we know that um, it's very difficult to love the things that truly deserve it because they demand much of us. Um, we know that it's hard to love the things that deserve our love um, because there's often not as much pleasure in loving what deserves to be loved because sin is delusional and offers this um, simulacrum of, of pleasure or stability. Uh, and so when we, when we sin, when our hearts are inclined to sin, when we learn the habits of sin and the, and the psychology of sin becomes ingrained in us, all of the desires and orders of our heart, our affections, are put out of order. And um, in addition to not having God as the, not loving God with all, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, um, it, it's often the case that you don't love your parents as much as you should. You don't love your children as much as you should. You don't love your country as much as you should. And that all of these things um, are, are out of order. And a, and a classical education is about returning the affections of the heart to, to where they ought to be and learning to love again uh, the most, what deserves to be loved the most and, and learning to love everything else in the, in the order that, it's, that it deserves. I mean, you, you touched upon something very beautiful, which is we, that what we should love the most demands the most of us. Yes. And even just to give an analogy with family, yeah. which is breaking apart. Um, I think it seems to me daily, I see weird fragmentations of family um, where it's not just, you know, um, maybe a single parent home, but it's like, a single parent home where people are still living with each other who are divorced or who, who don't have any, what is it? They're not in a relationship anymore, right. but they live, they still live with each other. They still co-parent. Um, this is strange. It's simple. It's right. simply that, but like you said, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, someone walking out on their family, they deserve to be loved and they've walked out because they want the base pleasures. You know, they right. don't want responsibility they want to go out whenever they go out and not spend time with their um, spouses or children. But we all can agree on that. Family deserves to be loved, right. but it also is demanding. So I think in our generation, we, we see demand as something inherently bad when it's actually reorienting us and giving us the potential to grow. Right. Yeah, not only do we see... It, another thing that you often hear people complain about um, or something that you hear people use as an excuse to not love things that are difficult to love is, is a great many things that are hard to love um, have baggage. This is the expression we hear over and over again, um, that this, this institution has baggage, this, uh, you know, <laughs> marriage has baggage, the word church has baggage, the word pastor has baggage. All these things have baggage. And... Um, and because we're afraid to love anything, which is imperfect, because we're afraid to throw our lot in with anything that's not ideal, we excuse our infidelity to these important and transcendent institutions on the grounds that they have baggage, which really just means some people have done some bad things at some point in the past. And, <laughs> and we're going to use that as leverage to get what we want today. Um, I've come to equate the word baggage with leverage when, when people use, when people claim that something has baggage, I think it means 
and and I want leverage over it. And that does raise a good point because then we go to, you know, if if I may dare say, take a God's eye perspective. I don't think any planet in this cosmos has more baggage than this one. Has more baggage than this one. If I may, if I may go off on a little tangent, you know, there's all this talk about UFOs and um, this report coming out next month by the Pentagon, whether this is going to be aliens or not. And in my head, I think you know whether there are or not is inconsequential. It's like, why would they want to come to this planet? Right. <laughs> it's like, if I were an alien, I'd be scared to come near this planet, you know? Right. And too, too much and, baggage. Yeah, too much baggage. But Christ came and carried the baggage with us That's and, right. and through us and for us. And, you know, this idea is education as a reordering, you know, like, like you said, you know, it's the conception is it's almost like we're a microchip and we're downloading information and, you know, the teacher's another microchip, but he has, you know, data that we don't have and we right. download. And, and I find, you know, it's interesting because most highly skilled professionals hate learning. Mm. I've, it's very rare, you know, you, you find like, let's say a doctor or a teacher who are interested in learning about medicine or interested in learning about pedagogy. Um, I find like, you know, they're highly skilled earners and they're high earning hedonists, you know, they still have the same desire that the most unskilled, uneducated, illiterate, poor person has, which is, I want to gratify my instincts, my urges. Um, they just now, uh, have trained themselves and armed themselves with the resources to do so. And that's, I think, a very demeaning uh, view of education, and it actually harms our spirituality. So let me, let me share a story. One time uh, we were doing an apologetics conference at my church, and there were three talks. Uh, the first talk was given by a priest who has a PhD in, um, I can't remember what it is, I think imaging, so like physics, um, engineering. Um, he gave a talk on... Um, DNA and how it works and how it's purpose oriented. And that's a sign of a mind. Then the second speaker, um, he's a PhD in, I think, neuroscience. He gave a talk on the church fathers in science. And I went last and I gave a talk on uh, the history of Christianity's interaction with science, even going back to the patristic period and, you know, what the church fathers were doing with commentaries was mirroring what the Greeks were doing with commentaries on, on you know, texts that dealt with the cosmos. And over time, they develop, developed a philosophy of nature. About five minutes into my talk, which was the last one, this lady in the back raises her hand and questions why any of this is necessary. You know, this whole conference, this whole concept. And um, she was very anti-intellectual. Um, she wasn't even speaking in English. Um, she, you know, she works here and I later found out to my shock and horror, uh, that she's a practicing physician. And, uh, in my head, uh, you know, and I had conversations about this afterward, um, with other physicians in my church community. I'm like, what do you guys think? And one of them, you know, said, it's not healthy to create a separation between what you do on a daily basis and your faith. And I think, you know, this fragmentation I mean, something that needs to be addressed. A lot of people, you know, who may go to church, who may be very highly skilled individuals, 
um, don't realize that when they keep their work life separate in every single instance and their spiritual life, it's actually harming the spiritual life. Um, what, what would you say to that? About the fragmentation of life and yeah. the separation. There's a, there's a great, there's a great book by a 20th century Lutheran philosopher named Eugen Rosenstock, he used to called The Christian Future. And uh, he opens the book with this, with the same observation, um, an observation on the fragmentation of life. And, and he comments, he kind of opens up his thoughts on this by describing a friend of his who, who by the time he was 30 had had more than 30 different jobs. He had never done anything for more than a little while. And speaking in a, in a somewhat, uh, I don't know, with a somewhat symbolic or prophetic ethos, Rosenstock Hughes, he says, if you want to know a man, you have to talk to him on his drive to work in the morning. You have to talk to him between these two places when he, when he can't retreat into either one of them from the obligations of the other. And he's, and he's suspended between these, these two worlds. Um, and I've always been somewhat enchanted with that idea. Um, we, we often talk about life uh, modern people like to talk about life in, in the fragmented sort of way where you have a spiritual life and a work life and a sex life and a love life and a, and a you know, we have all these different terms. And uh, this illusion persists that one of these lives can fall apart while the others remain intact. And if we're, if we're being fair to reality and the way that things work, I think it might be true that one of these lives can fall apart and the others remain unchanged for a little while, um, for a short period of time. Um, but in the end, you are one person with one soul and the same soul that goes to church must go to work and must go to bed and must do all of these things. Um, and the fact that you are one soul and that, um, that your soul binds together all of these separate lives, uh, this, this truth always outs in the end, um, even if you can maintain the illusion of separation for a short period of time. Um, so I, I think often because modern people are impatient, um, they use as proof that, that a fragmented way of life or a fragmented view of life and all these separate lives within a single life um, we, we tend to think that uh, just because your work life doesn't fall apart immediately, uh, just because your love life did, then it's proof that they're separate. But I think that the, that the truth often comes out in the long run. Um, and, and we see all of these lives converge slowly, day by day, year by year. And that the older you get, the harder it is to maintain the illusion that one, one part of life is not connected to the others. Yeah, and, and to speak to that, I think having conversations, real conversations with divorced people have really, has really shown me that. Yeah. Um, speaking with this one lady, I think she was married for, gosh, probably 20 years before she got divorced. Yeah. Um, got married very young and uh, 
she made it seem, you know, like, you know, she's happily divorced. This is the best she's ever been in life. And she mentioned that she wished she would have waited till she was older to get married. Hmm. Um, that there was definitely regret there that she did not want this to end that way. And it's ironic because I feel like in her case, even though she could not stand the guy that she divorced, it was the issues rather than the person, rather than the relationship that she was trying to get out of. And she was very open about that. And I was, you know, surprised that you can hear about, you know, the integration of life and marriage and, and spirituality and how all these things converge from someone who's not, you know, a believer and, um, you know, not in a healthy relationship. Right. Um, but no one, I think, ever spoke about the convergence of the three in, in a clearer and more compelling way. Yeah. Um, but yes, it, like you say, it's an illusion that we can separate these things. Um, maybe for a while, you know, maybe, right. maybe you know, someone who eats a lot of sugar and, and you know, um, fat can be under the illusion for a while that they're healthy and all right sure. but eventually you know their their habits catch up with them and you know it'll change their lives for you know forever permanently right um, yeah one of on that on that front in, in in thinking about the the story you just shared one of my favorite proverbs of all time is from the roman poet horace who said you may drive out nature with a pitchfork but she keeps coming back and and it strikes me that um, the woman that you just mentioned, not a believer, but as a human being, she had access to nature. She had access to a knowledge of nature. And if you pay attention to the events of your own life, you can understand something about human nature. And to know something about human nature is to, is to come very close to a knowledge of the transcendent because human beings are made in the image of God. Um, and that knowledge of nature is for the person who's willing to be honest and does not insist on the flattering delusions of, you know, nominalism and, um, and the sort of arbitrary will-oriented um, coercion of, of the world that's become so fashionable in the last 20 years. Um, common sense can teach you an awful lot about what real happiness is. I mean, it can't save you, but common sense can lead to a very stable life yeah and uh you touched upon nature you know there's this idea in the church fathers that we know god through nature yes. first then through the scripture as revelation yes and that that comes together in christ because the incarnation he has become part of nature but at the same time he's also the embodiment of the scriptures and the prophecies yes. and the promises of god um that raises questions. You know, if Christ entered the realm of nature, then studying nature and especially human nature gives us an insight into what he was doing and who we are. And, and I want to raise this point because I feel like, you know, there's this wave. It seems, I don't know, I think maybe it fluctuates. Some days I feel like it's getting bigger. Other days, you know, it's receding. But like there's this wave of anti-intellectualism among Christians. Mm -hmm. oh, and it, cer sure. it certainly has infiltrated the Orthodox Church. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, whether it's Orthodox Christians who are gravitating toward like a very simplistic Protestantism, or whether it's Orthodox Christians, you know, who, who you know, focus on canons, or, you know, very, um, you know, unknown, like very little known saints, and, you know, they become quote unquote masters of their works. And, you know, that's where their spirituality lies, you know, on both extremes, it's anti-intellectualism. They're not caring about learning the system um, that we hold as Christians, as Orthodox Christians specifically, that is centered upon Christ and his work and his victory over sin, death, and the powers of evil. But like, we don't need re read literature, but then we want to read the Bible. That's like, well, I mean, even adults don't read it, but they want their children to. You know, it's like, uh, I call it spiritually broke. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I've even heard many cases where um, the parents will reward the kids with, um, for reading the Bible. Yeah, reading the Bible. You know, I'll give you a dollar for every chapter you read. And, you know, um, if they get really high grades on the report card, they get like uh, $10, maybe a hundred. I had a kid actually in school, not Orthodox Christian, but, I think received a hundred dollars for every A they earned on the report card. Big deal. <laughs> it's, it's like, I don't know. It's like the kids gonna, I mean, they're, they're very, they're educating the kids to think mathematically, you know, mm. one A per quarter, 10 weeks is a hundred dollars. The quarter is 90 days, but one chapter for the Bible is a dollar, uh. you know, <laughs> to make the same amount of money. So they actually cause them to lose an appreciation and a grasp of the depth of what literature is and how the Bible participates in that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't think historically, but we want to read the Old and New Testaments, you know, very large parts of which are historical. And as a whole, it's a story. Um, you know, we dismiss philosophy. I love this. You know, you know they always misquote um, uh, Colossians, you know, beware lest... Uh, you be cheated through vain philosophies of men. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they don't realize he's referring to a very specific philosophy, not the whole endeavor, um, not right. the whole system. So classical education emphasizes literature and history and philosophy. Definitely. Yeah. What would that do for us spiritually? It can do a lot if you're open to it. Um, I think that the anti-intellectualism, anti-intellectualism might come in a couple different varieties, I suppose. Um, the kind that I'm most familiar with uh, emerges from something almost like a spiritual nihilism. And I'm referring to this belief that um, that a soul really only can do two things, be damned or be saved. Uh, as opposed to viewing a soul as a thing that, like a body, can be healthy or unhealthy. And health comes in a great range and diversity uh, of manifestations. I mean, there's all different kinds of health. Um, and if your body is ailing in health, there are things you can do to restore your health. Um, if you're overweight, you can diet and exercise. Um, if you have a certain liver condition or kidney condition or heart condition, 
There are operations you can receive. There are pills you can take. There are um, all different kinds of medicines and herbs and different changes in diet. All these things are possible. And you can slowly revive and restore the function of your kidneys and your liver, and you can reduce your blood pressure and you can strengthen your heart. But the modern American Christian tends to think that souls are either damned or saved, and that's really all there is. Uh, and so if a soul is damned, it needs to get saved. And if a soul is saved, it just needs to have as good as a time as possible before you die. And there's no real obligations to strengthen the soul and make it healthy. There's not even really a belief or confidence that a soul can do anything. Um, this sort of anti-intellectual tendency does not see the soul as a kind of companion. Uh, a soul is this other who lives inside of you that can hear you and can talk with you and respond to you and guide you. And that the affairs of the soul um, and the concerns of the soul can be a great boon to the body. Um, but this is often because we live in this society of commodified art where we're distracted by um, ultra sensual um, entertainment all the time. And we're never left alone with our own thoughts where we can encounter our soul and realize that our soul is a benefit to us, a companion, and that we can strengthen our soul by feeding it the things that it wants, which is beauty and truth and goodness. Uh, but because we don't believe in healthy souls or unhealthy souls, just damned souls and saved souls, we don't want to feed our souls. Uh, and I think that the, the lack of desire to feed your soul and strengthen it is the primary uh, manifestation of anti-intellectualism uh, that I see. Yeah, and that, that's, that's actually a very insightful way of presenting it, um, that the soul, like the body, you know, it's either healthy or unhealthy, right. and that we have to work toward getting it healthy. Yeah. And you know, literature and history and philosophy, these are all expressions of the soul. Yes. This is what separates us from animals. Animals don't create literature, you know. Right. They don't sit together and discuss history. They don't even have a sensation of time. Hmm. Um, you know, they only know what's present right. and what is necessary through the, the working of their instincts. Humans, there is no reason for us to consider a future or to remember a past. There simply isn't, even, you know, even from an evolutionary point of view, there is no reason for that to come and to be, to, to do anything for us. It's something that we've been endowed with mm. and that gives us a very rich vision of nature. <laughs> um, and this is, you know, of course, the, the reflection of the image of God in us, mm. that there's a difference between just simple survival and, you know, being in the ecosystem and beholding it. Hmm. We as humans have been given that gift to behold. And it's not just a gift, but it's our nature itself created in the image of God. So when, when we read literature or history or philosophy, it's a window into the work of God. Even if the writers of those things be not Christian, or even in the case of the early church, be you know pagans before the incarnation. The early church was very, what's the word? I, if I may use the word bubbly, you know, they were very bubbly. They, they loved these things. You know, they read, read literature with a joy, even though it was 
pagan and i feel like you know christians today oh the person who wrote this profound work is not christian no we're not reading this you know that's unacceptable we may have ideas in there you know and it's everything becomes defensiveness you know that's you know everything is like um it, if i may say it has to go through the roman curia <laughs> you know right. it's going to be approved literature and not approved literature approved philosophy and not approved and you know even in the sense um you know, like, like Stoic philosophy and Platonic philosophy had a very big, um, I don't want to say influence or impact, but it definitely provided um, the early church with engagement. They engaged these forms of thinking. And you know, what the Stoics have to say about introspection, I think that's extremely powerful. Of course, of course, I I think, you know, like, like to to go on into specifics, because this is something that you would see in a classical school, where they do read Greek literature, um, if I'm not mistaken. At some, yeah. Yeah, at some. Um, The Stoics had this idea of apatheia, which was to become emotionless, not to be disturbed by the things that happen to you in the world. But their ultimate reason for it, reason and purpose, was that they're all just going to become part of the cosmos at the end. Mm. They will all become fire, so to speak. They will all be subsumed into the whole. They're here for a short time as individuals, like sparks in the cosmos. And this apathy is to make peace with that fact and to live and harmony with nature. The Christians certainly engaged that, but they, and they even, the early Christians had this virtue of apathia as well, dispassion. But it was motivated by love. The reason was love and love for God and love for others. It's almost an extension of what we will call patience in Christianity. So, there was this idea that we can engage, that there is something right here, but it was not founded upon the right premises or for the right purpose. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like they were very bubbly. You know, mm-hmm. whereas today, if something like this happened, I, I think Christians would just, you know, no, we don't read that. You know, we don't want to get confused. Right. Um, it's just vain philosophy and so forth, but it's not vain. Um in a way, I feel like they were grasping. They hit something right, and they were grasping. Um, you know, their soul was grasping for health, and it got some way there, not all the way. Um, so, you know, you see that. You see, like, the fathers will engage these texts. And even, like, like the fields of psychology today, psychology emerged out of a very wide and deep reading of literature <laughs> you know right. this is this is the foundation of all psychology you know um uh freud was influenced by nietzsche and nietzsche said that dostoevsky the novelist the great christian novelist the great orthodox christian novelist i just got to put that in there he said he was the greatest psychologist um from whom he could learn anything yeah um so we see and it's that- interesting that yeah. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, we see that genealogy. And same thing with Jung. Jung was very heavily involved in reading literature yeah. and discerning patterns that he saw in, in his patients' dreams and, and ways of being. 
the um, the fascinating thing about Freud is that he grew out of literature and he's more or less returned to literature. Like a Freudian analysis, the word Freudian is almost always used uh, these days in reference to a way of analyzing a text. Uh, I, I don't know how much purchasing power Freud still has in the realm of um, clinical psychology, but, but literary theorists still respect him an awful lot. Um, something you said earlier about, uh, I like this description, the, the bubbliness of the church fathers. Uh, I have heard that in his brief attempt to redivert the empire back towards paganism, uh, that Julian the Apostate forbade Christians from teaching pagan literature in their schools. Oh yeah, because yeah. because he saw what they did with it. <laughs> he didn't like he didn't like the uh, he didn't like the sound Christian use that they put pagan literature to, and so he tried to keep them from from being allowed to teach it. Yeah, and, and you know, the irony of that, um, uh, you know, he, he argued, you don't believe these texts, why are you teaching them? Right. And, uh, you know, it's like, they're, they're superior to your texts, but he was a very, um, he's a very enigmatic figure. Agreed. Um, being, being born into a Christian family and converting to paganism. I mean, I would argue about, you know, the Christian family aspect. Um, definitely Christians by name and, by, you know, public um, profession, but whether of morality. Um, and I read a very uh, provoking, um, you know, analysis of him in, in the book, uh, The Atheist Delusions, The oh, Christian yeah. Revolution and Its Fashionable Enemies by David Bentley Hart, which I recommend. Um, I know Hart has gone, you know, into new directions these days to put it mildly yeah but but in in his earlier works including the atheist delusions um there is solid you know way of looking at things but he made this very provocative statement that of all the emperors who had a christian sensibility it was julian the opposite <laughs> and, and it's because he was so overwhelmed by Christianity, in a sense, he didn't even recognize that it had transformed him, mm. even in his pagan days. You know, he centralized the priesthood. That's imitating Christianity. Mm. Um, he, he, he had um, a heart for helping the poor. And he even reluctantly, and I, I feel like when he was writing the letter, he's begrudgingly acknowledging that Christians don't only take care of their poor, mm. but of the pagan poor. That is a Christian sensibility. Where you know you're not afraid to criticize your own um, group, mm. and you know we see Christians doing that from the beginning, <laughs> even in the like the passion narratives, um, where the apostles are portrayed as you know cowards. You know to say it very bluntly, like Christians have not been afraid to criticize mm. themselves since the beginning, whether it's in their fleeing from Christ um, during the crucifixion and the trial, but it's. Christians, yeah, like you said, you know, he had to forbid them. There were that many Christians teaching literature that he actually had to step in and, you know, in our words, create an executive order to remove them out of teaching. Um, but yeah, I mean, where has that gone? It's, <laughs> it's you know, like in, in, in Egypt, in the room in Ramesses' house, um, where his library was, he had a personal library 
Um, the Greeks said it had a phrase on the, the, the lintel that said healing for the soul. So like the library was the place you enter to heal the soul. And I think, you know, reading poetry and reading very powerful literature, even like a book I think of like The Little Prince um, in, in our era. Yeah. These are, this is a very powerful book. Um, very short, I think 82 pages. But what it does for the soul and you know how it reveals the vanity of modern life and how it raises our sensibility to those things that are truly important. In 82 short and simple pages, you know, we would have you know a, a priest writing a 500-page book today, and this book does it beautifully in 82 <laughs> and in, in a story format. You know, literature, um, philosophy, creating a vision and a framework for interpreting the world. Like what the fathers were doing was philosophy. It was creating a Christian philosophy. Um, what happens when we don't have that? When we don't have a Christian philosophy? You know, not just, you know, tenets and rules and commandments and don't do this and don't do that. But what happens when we we don't have an overarching vision and we don't have a literature that we can read? What happens to us as humans at that point? Well, we accept whatever's easiest and nearest and most pleasant, I think. Um, the thing about great literature, the thing about great music and great art is that most people need a guide. Most people need someone to turn them on to these things. And it happens that people find Bach on their own. And it happens that people, I'm sure that, um, you know, blue collar workers on occasion pick up a copy of the Divine Comedy for $2 at Goodwill and read it and love it. But I don't think that's very common. I think that these things have to be given to us. Um, that most people who read Milton, Dante, Augustine, all of the um, big names in, in the Western canon or, or Plato, etc. Most people these days that read those books are handed copies of those books by someone. Someone says, you need to read this. This is very good. And we feel compulsion personally to read these books because someone has told us that they are good. And these are hard things to get into because very, I believe this, very good things are hard to like. Uh, mediocre things are easy to like. Ple pleasant things are easy to like. New things are easy to like. They're made in our image. They're made to satisfy us. No one ever hated his own flesh. But old things are unlike us. Uh, old things come from a different country and they have all sorts of weird demands and strange claims and outdated primitive quote unquote uh, beliefs. And so we have to be given these by someone else. We have to be handed them and we have to be told to read them. Most of us do, I did at least. Um, and if there's no one there to give us these things, we will fill the vacuum, we will fill the need for music and truth and philosophy and literature with, with whatever the spirit of the age gives us. Um, the zeitgeist will fill that 
vacuum for us. Um, so unless Christians are willing to be taught, unless they're willing to engage in the traditions of great literature and great music and great art, um, they will simply be guided by whatever's fashionable and their hearts will be filled by ephemeral things that come and go very quickly and they will become like the ephemeral things that they love. Um, and in the same way that the things that they love don't last, their souls won't last either. And if I may connect that back, you know, at the beginning we said what we should love is demanding. Right. It, Very demand, yes, it demands right. a lot of us. And I think that goes to the literature, right? the great literature, the great books. We should love them. And at the same time, they're not the easy books. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, They're very difficult oftentimes. You know, I, I criticize AR a lot, you know, Accelerated Reader. Um, it started off in the, you know, 90s and a, a wildfire very quickly. You know, I, you know, I, I got to give credit where credit's due. The only good thing about it is the marketing. This was a great marketing team, but they completely warped the idea of reading in the minds of the last three generations. You know, the generation X, the millennials in this generation, it's they've grown up thinking that reading is nothing more than novels. And, you know, novels all have the same structure, regardless, you know, it's the exposition, the rising action, the climax. But when you come up into literature, like the divine comedy, you don't find anything else like it. <laughs> you Very know, true. when you read the dialogues of Plato, um, while the dialogue form, you see it in a lot of other places. And, you know, even among the church fathers, uh, St. Justin's dialogue with Trifo, um, Augustine's dialogues, um, the way that Plato goes about it, you also don't find anything like it. And maybe that's why every single dialogue he wrote has survived. You know, every dialogue attributed to his name, we still have copies of it till today. Um, that is challenging. That type of reading is not being taught in any way in modern schools, whether it's, right. whether it's public or whether it's even Christian private schools. Right. Only I think the classical schools are doing that right now, where literature is something to engage with. Right. To, there is, it's not easy. It's, it's, like, it's almost like dealing with an individual you know, we, when we deal with individuals just like us in brief, you know, um, meetings, whether it's at the coffee shop or at the park or whatnot, or the grocery store, we'll forget them. You know, if, if they're quote unquote stock personalities, you know, but it's the personalities that are not stock, that are different, that are unique, um, even in a good sense. We remember those but it's because we had to engage. It was a challenge to interact and dialogue with them. And that's what great literature does. It expands our vision. It, it, it almost is like a training for the soul. And actually that was a, a word that they used um, in the ancient world, the gymnasium. It was not just for bodily training, but it was also for you know literature and philosophy. It was also, this was the spiritual training, the training of the soul. Now, um, 
there's this idea that you know, I hear this a lot, you know, when, when a priest gives a sermon and, I'm, you know, my audience knows that I can go very blunt at many times and I never apologize for it because there's nothing to apologize about. It's I'm doing my service to the community, but it's like, you know, we hear sermons and there's this idea, like we got to filter out the practicable from the theoretical, from what is just knowledge to what we can act. And if I hope if I've done anything on my podcast and blog is to show how faulty this way of being is, because it means there is no importance to vision. There is no importance for understanding the reason and the purpose for what we do. It's just what we do. Um, I found that this leads to spiritual destruction you know, growing up, um, you know, in the, in the mid to late 2000s, I felt like Christianity was very popular in the United States, especially among young people. And look at where we uh, are today. <laughs> you mean, uh, when you say popular, do you mean the emergent church? Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll? Oh, uh, uh, they were um, part of that. But blue like, like jazz. Yeah, so looking at the evangelical uh, churches in the U.S. in the late, like in the mid to late 2000s, I felt like in the high schools, it was popular for kids to say they were Christian. And the sad thing is it was, they, they instead of creating a vision by which to live by, mm -hmm. they got them to do what they want them to do, mm -hmm. the practicable, without vision. <laughs> and look at millennials now. They mm -hmm. have the lowest church involvement of all generations in the United States. It's because they never developed a vision. Mm. It's just things to do. And we all know when we've got things to do. You know, there was, a, there was a day and age where the thing to do was, you know, go to the park and, and play with your friends. You know, these days, I don't know any little kid who wants to go to the park. They want to play on their phones. True. That's interesting that, that you perceive Christianity as popular then as compared with now, and that the cause of this was that it was overly practical. Within, um, I mean, I've been, I've been Orthodox for 12 years. Um, but I've, I mean, I've, I grew up in a Bible reading, church attending, um, Protestant household. And it is, it's rather remarkable what is meant by the term practical theology. You hear a lot about practical theology, you especially hear about it at schools. Um, and it, it goes back, I think, to the sort of, a, a different sort of anti-intellectualism than the one that we were talking about a little bit ago. Uh, it, it, it's a belief that unless you can easily transform dogma into something pastoral or homiletic, that um, that there's no real purpose to it, that it's just this kind of egg-headedness, that it's just an um, obsession over esoterica and details. Um, and I think that that, I think that that often shortchanges what profound dogma is actually capable of doing in the human heart when it actually really settles in. Um, the importance of impractical theology always bears itself out uh, if you give it enough time and if you allow it to, to seep into your, your soul deeply enough.
And, and you know, the paradox of that is when we let that impractical dogma settle in our hearts, what it can do after that and what it often does is way beyond the imagination that we had when we're just trying to That's apply so it. Right. That's to, so right. Yeah, to apply it in the <laughs> little so thing. True. If, if I may give an example, it's like all you know of water is that it comes in bottles. <laughs> right. There's not much to do with water. You'll drink it. You may right. use it, a, you right. know, you may uh, poke a hole in the bottle and use it as a squirt, squirt bottle, you know, right. on, your, on your brother or sister and drive mom and dad mad. <laughs> but then when you have a concept of the ocean, right. what you can, or the river, what you can do with water cannot end. Yeah, that's right. You know, you can navigate. You can mine the riches of the rivers and the oceans. You can build factories. I mean, not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of factories, but, you know, at least, you know, ruining the environment. I'm not a big fan of that. But the potential for water, when you understand what it is and where it comes from, mm. will do infinitely more than just water is, comes in bottles and we drink it. Right. I think this idea of practicality limits what we could hear from dogma, from theology, from philosophy. Yeah. So one or two things that we can do, and that leads to spiritual stagnation. Yeah. Um, it's like it's like holding a dollar, or no, let's 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 give a big number. It's like holding a million dollars in an account right. for 30 years. What that million will buy in 30 years is nowhere, it's not even half of what it could have bought um yeah. uh 30 years before. It's right. It's, it's almost like it invests itself in us and we can invest with it. So I feel like it's so limited when we focus on the practical. Right. It, it's so limited when we focus on the practical because practical theology necessarily precludes any sort of interest in beauty because beauty is wildly impractical. Beauty is gratuity. It's overflow. It's surplus. It's... Uh, I think that I think that uh, David Hart describes beauty as a gratuity of being in um, the beauty of the infinite. Um, beauty doesn't serve a practical purpose. It's it 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 serves the soul, right? Um, beauty is the food of the soul. Beauty confirms the existence and the goodness and the transcendence of the soul, um, which is uh, which is why if you force people to live um, in ugly buildings and you give them nothing but ugly work to do, you can't be surprised when they believe you in the end. Um, people need beauty in order to think highly of themselves and other people. Um, so in, in that sense, there is this sort of paradoxical practicality of beauty, like Roger Scruton says in a couple different places. Like if you, if you build, if you make a building and it's not beautiful, it's not gonna last very long because no one's gonna like it. They're just gonna tear it down. Like if you, if you want a building to last, you have to make it beautiful. Even though the beauty doesn't serve a practical purpose, it makes you love the building and the things that you love, you take care of. Well, beauty's always gonna be impractical. Um, but, you're, but the point that you make is, is a really profound one um, that, that the, impractical or the you know the far-fetched or the spectacular dogma ends up being capable of doing things in the human heart that practical theology is not capable of doing and and when i think of some of the most um beautiful works of of art and literature 
uh, there's nothing practical about them. Like you think of um, Caravaggio's Seven Works of Mercy or um, The Water Carrier of Seville by Diego Velasquez. These are just staggeringly beautiful paintings and they are not the product of a practical imagination. They're the product of this ruminating and brooding on something mysterious for a long time. Um, so if, if, a, if someone like Diego Velasquez or Caravaggio or um, you know, Bach or Milton had grown up with nothing but practical things to think about, they would not have been capable of making anything as impractical as the beautiful works of art that they produced. Yeah, and, and it makes me, you know, it makes me realize our generation does not produce much beautiful things. There are certainly, you know, some music out there and, and sure. some art and some films that are very beautiful, but it's just, it's, it's a different expression of the same basic thing. Like look at all these superhero movies. Um, very exciting. You know, fun to watch. Definitely the production level and the effects is very high, you know, uh, very well done. Some of the concepts dealt with are very like, um, you know, provocative. And if I may use one, um, Star Wars. And for those who know me, I like Star Wars. Yeah, I do too. But, but I feel, you know, of all the films out there, it's very superficial in whatever it's trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. Like, like when I go, for example, like a movie like The Dark Knight, the, the Christopher Nolan Batman film, the second one in the trilogy, that's an incredibly profound work of art. Um, what it says about society and evil and someone having to step in and bearing that in order to set us free from its power. And that ending has always gotten to me. You know, the ending where he's, um, uh, he, he, you know, Harvey Dent, this lawyer who was supposed to save Gotham by following the law and applying, applying, there we go, the practicality of all its principles. He was turned upside down. And using those same principles, he's turned around to do the greatest possible harm that none of these criminals ever did. Hmm. And it gives the Joker, who I, I consider a type of Satan in the film, you know, the ability to put the whole city in disorder. Then there's that scene with the two ships. Mm-hmm. You know, each each one of you has a detonator to the bomb on the other ship. If you don't blow them up, then both of you will be blown up. And I find it like it's the ultimate expression of utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. It's this side of this ship is discussing, you know, they, they had their chance. They messed up. They did not do their part to society. They don't deserve to live. Mm-hmm. And this idea of deserving to live and not deserving to live, it's there, it's regardless, they're all gonna die. And it's only when Batman steps in and starts to unravel that um, plan. And then at the end, he covers what Harvey Dent has done. He stops the Joker, then covers what Harvey Dent has done. It's almost like he's bearing it. And, and I know, you know, we can get into theological problems here, but at least one interpretation, which I think is orthodox, is that by what he has done, he breaks the power of the disorder and allows Gotham to go back into order. And 
I feel like Star Wars with all, you know, you know, the superior filmmaking, <laughs> it never communicated a message like that. And I feel like that's where it went. So, you know, like, like I always feel it lacks if I think it could have become one of the most powerful works of art, if it was not just tropes, mm. you know, not just uh, you got a hero, he's saving a damsel in distress, he makes some allies, he beats the bad guys, boom. And, you know, George Lucas, you know, to his credit, he's very open about what he was doing. He never set out to create like a profound work of literature. <laughs> he said he was using uh, patterns and myths that he learned from his teacher at USC. Right. Yeah. So, so I feel like you don't get much of those. And that's why like the dark Knight stands out and, and movies like, um, what else? Like, I, I'm trying to think the dark Knight. Um, I, you know, it, it's sad that I can only think of one right now, but like when it comes to literature, I can think of a lot, especially like ancient literature, medieval literature. And it's, something like that when we're brought into that experience and that's what that movie does it causes something in us to change with how we look at the world it almost sets the world right or our world our heart in the right direction and it allows us to contemplate and and to come to conclusions about ourselves and the world and when we get rid of that when we get rid of beauty all we have left is, is, you know, excitement, shock, novelty. And we know the thing about novelty. Eventually, it's, it's obsolete. Right. It's, What's exciting the first time is banal the second time. But like beauty itself, when we see a beautiful work of art, you can't exhaust it. Because right. it's not just novelty. It's, it has showed us something. It has shown us something and continues to produce a response in us. Right. You know, reading like, like The Little Prince, for example, and, and people like, that's a children's book. I'm like, ah, that's by today's standards. I think that's a work of philosophy. Um, what it does is that it breaks us out of the cycles. And, you know, when he's going through the seven planets or the seven asteroids, right. and each one is stuck in a problem that has destroyed his ability. Let me go back. So, like, he sees the lamp uh, lighter. And, you know, the lamp, he lights the lamp, then the lamp goes out like a minute later. Right. And then he relights it on. It's the cycles of life that imprison us. It's not to say that work is bad. Work is a blessing. But when we do nothing but work and there's no contemplation of the beautiful cultivation of relationships, no cultivation of a relationship with God, one of awe and wonder and worship, we just become a gear in the machine. We become part of the machines that we're participating in. And like you said, we're, I think, did you say beauty starved? We're the ones that are beauty starved. Um, maybe you did. I can't remember. I think, but. I think that's true. I don't know if I used those. Yeah, but you implied it, certainly. <laughs> but beauty is the beginning of the healing, I think. And it's the church fathers themselves equate a beauty itself with God. Hmm. He is this pattern that fills the whole of the cosmos and all beautiful things are a window into the beautiful one. And when we ignore literature and history and philosophy, and you know, it's all about practicality. We're the person lighting the lamp and waiting a minute later to light it up again. You know, we're the ones who sin and, you know, okay, we'll go to confession and 
and confess our sins to the priest and we'll do the same next week and it becomes a mechanical christianity versus a dynamic living faith agreed and i think when we involve ourselves in these humanities and in these ways of thinking and reading at least the better relationships um i feel you know it's yeah. maybe maybe just me but um i feel it's i don't think it's just me though um definitely every one of my circles um who's like-minded agrees um it's very easy to enjoy a relationship with those who read literature with those who have learned to see through it and to enjoy the beauty of it and to be transformed with it. Um, the same deal with those who read history and philosophy. It's like the relationship only grows. But those who, you know, are interested in music um, of the day and age and, you know, the, the sitcoms of the day and age, it's a very poor soul. And that's why I think they do poor, you know, someone, you know, I like The Office. I like, um, you know, what band was popular 10 years ago? Uh, Jonas Brothers. Let's just give an example. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, if, oh, okay. She and I like the same music. We watch the same shows. Well, newsflash, The Office ended. Right. Um, you can watch it as many times as you want. Um, Jonas Brothers broke up as a band. <laughs> and what do you have left? Nothing. And I think that's why divorces are so common, even among young people. I've never seen, like in my generation, I, I saw, I, I had a classmate in college, 25, very beautiful girl. Mm. Um, she was 25 and already divorced. What happened? <laughs> um, no, another person um, got married shortly after high school. Divorced. Why? It's like, it's been very tough. It's, We've got nothing in common. And it's, there's not that beauty that is letting itself act on the soul and having a role in the healing and the growth that allows us to meet other people soul to soul, not just someone who lives in this cultural moment, you know, this cultural moment expressed in a person. <laughs> the same cultural moment expressed in this person and, and that's why i feel like you can get people from wildly different cultures right. generation i have a lot of friends who are a generation two generations older than me and i could talk to them all day long they never watched the shows that i grew up watching yeah. they never heard that they may not even know the name <laughs> right. they never heard the music that i've heard yeah and because you have to talk about human things you have to yeah. human nature is what you have in common you don't have shows and and uh and films and, and records in common but if you've if you've experienced and and mulled over um great works of art beautiful things um then you've been directed separately to the same truths about human nature and you have a whole lot to agree on and a whole lot to sort out in your experiences for one another uh two people who are committed to human nature 
not to committed to human, committed to understanding human nature and understanding what it takes to reconcile human nature to the divine nature, have a lot to teach one another, whether they like the same things uh, or not. They have the same purpose. They have the same, um, they're born of the same spirit. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's the human things, the things that are universal to us as hu- and, and unique to us as humans. I'm like hope, for example, and how hope transforms, which then allows us to understand the idea of hope in the New Testament. Um, I had a student several years ago, a very, very rough upbringing. Um, just, I don't want to go into too much detail, but like, you know, did not have one parent in her life from the very beginning, did not want to have anything to do. The other parent gave her up to another family member and, you know, that happened once more. And, you know, she was in a state of depression and rightly so, because that's a life where you're just a thing. You're not a person. You are not valued for your soul, but you're just something that has to be managed. So by the time I got her in, in you know, eighth grade, she was reading half of uh, her grade level, you know, four years behind. And there was a lot of potential in her. But it was not being fulfilled because there was no sense that it could continue. So we had to change the way that she was thinking that, you know, you put in work, you put an effort on your part, you will grow. It's a, re- it's a response to what you are learning from your part. So she grew one grade level, two, three, four, until at the end of the year, she was reading at a high school reading level. Um, even up until, you know, like three months before, whenever she felt like, let's say, half a grade level, she would look at that half as opposed to like the five that she grew. <laughs> and eventually, toward the very end, when she found out when she's going to high school, she is not going to be behind anymore and she will start where she's supposed to be. She actually cried tears of joy. That was the first and maybe only time I've had a student cry tears of joy. Yeah, that's not something experienced, you know, in this generation. It's either I did the work, give me, give me, but they don't see the struggle. And I realized that girl for the first time in her life learned hope. That's something she can converse about. That's something that can carry over into other areas of life. You know, when she deals with a challenge, she'll know that if she works towards something, it does not have to stay challenging. And these are the things that people can discuss across generations, across cultures. Um, When we contemplate, and I'll say it, the image of God within us, and through that image, God himself, whether we would know it or not, you know, we may not like C.S. Lewis has that very provocative um, chapter at the end of his book, um, Your Christianity, Nice People or New Men. And he says, there are some Christians who are actually no longer Christians, but it's not yet apparent. They're leaving the faith, but they don't even know it yet. Mm-hmm. And then there are those that are not Christians and profess that to be so but they're actually in the process of being converted and transforming. Their sensibilities are changing. They're coming to view things through the Christian eye. And that is a, that's a proper and authentic conversion. 
you know, it's not a moment, it's a process. Mm -hmm. You know, even the idea of salvation, the Asian part of salvation means the process of, so it's a process of being saved. It's not a momentary thing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a response to God and to his work in the world. And when we read literature and learn to see things through the eyes of characters and possibilities and situations that challenge and provoke us, it brings us closer to him. When we read history and we see the, the wisdom and the foolishness of people who've lived in times past, we see him working in them. Those who lived in the way of wisdom lived according to the image of God within. Those who lived in foolishness act against it. And when we ignore all that, we're giving up spirituality for the idea of practical benefit. Right. And it's very limiting. But the other and, becomes And it won't element. last. Yeah. That's the other thing. Is that is that to give up to give up on spirituality is is to consign yourself um to instability and 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 meaninglessness. Um to give up on on the struggle to give up on the on the labor of seeking after God and to either consign yourself to failure or to success before you've reached it um, is, to, is to give yourself over to a meaningless life, to a life that does not need to exist, a life that you cannot justify existing. Um, and, so, and so to despair of beauty and to give yourself over to sensuality instead is a kind of suicide. It's a spiritual suicide. Yes. Yeah. And that's where I think classical education comes in. It's where, you know, people are afraid of the public school system and rightly so. And even before, you know, all these, you know, things that are happening today happened before. Right. It's just the way that they approach things, you know, where you read literature to practice skills. That's not the right way to approach literature. Right. And no matter if, you know, all the issues that Christians fear go away from the public schools, the fundamental issue of that right there alone will remain. And sadly, that carries over the Christian private schools. Yeah. But the, but the classical schools, and this is what I want my audience to, to really start thinking about you take that time k through 12 and it becomes a spiritual training you are giving your children a broad vision of the world a deep vision of the world and that makes them full souls and when they deal with others like that their relationships will be solid you know the the association of classical Christian schools did a survey last year. Um, I think it's called Good Soil. They commissioned a professor from uh, uh, Notre, Dame, uh, Notre Dame University. Yeah. And they found that on average, children who have graduated, not children, adults, they did the survey for alumni ranging from ages 23 to 42. And they tested it against populations who have been homeschooled, uh, gone through public school, prep schools, uh, Catholic schools, evangelical private schools, and public schools. And they found in every single 
um, index. They, they had seven um, life outcome indexes, indices. Um, one of them included like relationships. They found that on average, those who went to classical schools have more friends and deeper and more meaningful friendships and more frequent contact with those friends on a weekly basis than any other of the categories. And I think it's because when we've developed our souls and we've made them full and we've taken them, you know, we've taken that image of God within us seriously and applied it to literature and history and philosophy. We come into contact with people that we can become lifelong friends with. And that's important for like marriages and relationships. Yeah. You know, it won't be just quote unquote communication issues which really means, you know, the husband and wife have nothing to talk about and are not drawn to one another, <laughs> um, you know. But I assume in that category, they didn't look at it, that their marriages and would be better. You know, they all express that family life is better and they're, they're more integrated and closer to, to their families than like graduates of public school. And in that category, I think it was by like a 40% difference you know, in stats, it's 5% that makes a meaningful difference. This is, you know, um, wow. eight times more than, the, you know. Wow. So um, let's say you come into contact and maybe we can leave this as a thought provoker for our audience. Okay. You know, let's say you're sitting at a Starbucks one day, you know, drinking a cup of tea in the afternoon and someone comes sits next to you and find out both of you are Christians and Orthodox Christians specifically. And they wonder what classical education is and why it's important and why not, you know, save money and send kids to public school and, you know, make sure that they're involved in all the youth groups at church and Bible study and Sunday school. Um, what would you tell them? Why classical education? I would say I would, um, I would open with a quote from, uh, Nicholas Gomez de Villa and say, there is an illiteracy of the soul which no diploma can cure. And if you believe that, then you should send your kids to a classical school. <laughs> uh, or I might open with uh, Walker Percy's, you can get all A's and still flunk life. Uh, I think that classical education is, is just the sort of education you set up when you believe those ideas, that, that when you believe that the soul itself can be incapable of communicating that, that you can so dull a soul that it that it that a soul is nearly incapable of communicating with the outside world and that no matter how many um honors and um you know high high geometry test scores you throw at it a soul can still be incapable of understanding beauty appreciating beauty let alone creating it if you find that terrifying, and I hope you do, classical education is the sort of education that exists to make literate souls, to make souls that speak to and commune with beauty himself. If I may say, and I'll close off with this, every single person I know who experienced a struggle, a crisis of faith, and that came back solidly, every single one of them came back because they finally grasped the inexhaustible beauty of God. It wasn't, you know, the logic, the arguments, um, especially for those who go through crises. 
it's at the end of the day you realize, yes, there are all these problems in this disordered world. But I also see the beauty in everything. And that speaks. It's speaking to me. And it's pointing to someone who is that beauty that fills all things. And when that happens, I've never seen anything that can do anything further to shake those people's faith. It becomes fundamentally solid. Thank you, Josh, for being with me today, um, for Sweet. discussing this. Uh, for those of you listening, um, you can find him at gibbsclassical.com. Is that correct? That's correct. And uh, I believe he does online classes um, for subjects. So if you want to try this out, um, you can go there and, and see it and get a, get a taste of the great things to come if you decide to take up this way of education for your children and for yourself. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.